you are in children's church, you are now dismissed to that. We are going to be looking this morning at all of Hebrews chapter 7, so buckle your seatbelt. Uh, this is a uh, this is a, a good passage. There's a there's 28 verses, so we're going to have to go fast. But there's great stuff that's in here. And as you make your way there, I want to just tell you a quick story. Uh, years ago, when Karen and I were serving at our church over in Iowa, uh, the youth pastor there played a game with the students one night called Bigger and Better, and he divided all of the students up into teams. And he gave each team captain a paperclip. And he said, go forth into the community with your paperclip and try to trade up as much as you can for something bigger and better. And you'd be surprised what people are willing to part with. Uh, you know, you start out with a paperclip and they maybe trade for a quarter and then I'll trade you a quarter for something a little bigger and a little better. Uh, the winning team came back with a new treadmill, by the way. <laughs> I think that was a failed Christmas gift some husband had given his wife or something, I don't know. But in any case, new treadmill with the tags on it came back to the church, <laughs> okay? A couple thousand dollars in exercise equipment made its way to us. Uh, and they had a ho- so much fun trading up for something bigger and better. I've heard of, game, I've heard of uh, youth groups doing this where they come back with the keys and title to a car, which is pretty awesome. Uh, Stephen, if you need ideas, this would be one we should try. (laughs) All right. Um, But I mention this incident because one theme that runs consistently through the whole book of Hebrews is that Jesus and the new covenant that he establishes through his death and resurrection is the ultimate bigger and better priest and covenant and sacrifice and way to God. That he is bigger and better than everything that has come before in the entire Old Testament. That he is the fulfillment, in fact, of everything that is predicted. And all of the Old Testament speaks about him. But he is this giant figure that strides above all of it. And that he is bigger and better than everything that could possibly be. And the reason that he is telling them this is that some of these Jewish Christians are tempted to go back to being simply Jews, to being simply practitioners of temple worship who believe what the Old Testament says, but ignore its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. To no longer be Christians, to no longer be completed Jews, if you will, Messianic Jews who know that the Messiah has come, but still Jews in anticipation of a Messiah. And he's telling them that to leave behind Jesus is to leave behind the bigger and better fulfillment that all of the things in Judaism pointed to. And by the way, Uh, I doubt that very many of us, since there are only a couple of us here in this room who have any Jewish heritage whatsoever, are much tempted to go back to Judaism. But some of us have been tempted to go back to our old life, whatever that was. And these verses are here as an encouragement for us, too, 
to know that Jesus is the bigger and better thing that we have all been looking for. You remember? Back in the 80s, Bono had that song, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for, right? You too would sing, right? And uh, back in my misspent youth, uh, we, would, uh, we would sing along, right? I still haven't found what I'm looking for, but, but the point of Hebrews is Jesus is it. He's what you're looking for. He's what everything in this life is geared to point you toward. And having found him, to abandon him is a terribly bad decision. Amen? And so, and so we want to look at Jesus, the bigger and better high priest, here this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I hope you found your way to Hebrews chapter 7. Let's look at verses 1 through 14. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there necessarily is a change in the law as well. For the one who, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now, some of you sat there and read that along with me, and you went, Melchizedek, who? <laughs> what? Okay, uh, there are a total in your Old Testament of five verses that talk about this person, Melchizedek. Four of them are in Genesis chapter 14, and one of them is in Psalm 110, verse 4. Uh, he is a fairly obscure figure, but what the writer of Hebrews is doing is using what is called rabbinical interpretation where he is looking at something in the Old Testament, and he is expounding on it and enlarging on it and noting both what is included about this person and what is not included, and applying it all to Jesus Christ. And making the point that Jesus is a priest, but not a priest like the sons 
of Aaron, the brother of Moses, who descend from the tribe of Levi, who, does, who is the, grand, uh, the great-grandson of, J- of uh, Abraham, okay? So, the Jewish nation is founded with Abraham, then he has, t- he has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two boys, Jacob and Esau. The promise goes to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, one of which is Levi, and generations later, uh, Levi has a son named Aaron, right? Uh, a descendant named Aaron. And all of the priests descend from Aaron, the brother of Moses, uh, all the way through the Old Testament. All of the priests have to be descended from Aaron. But there are also other people who believe in God Most High that exist at the same time as the nation of Israel. And one of them you meet in Genesis 14 of uh, this figure named Melchizedek. Now, in Genesis 14, what's happened is Abraham's nephew, Lot, has gotten captured by a bunch of these uh, pagan kings, have hauled him off into, into captivity along with his family, along with all of his possessions. And Abraham has done something like the Entebbe raid. You know, he's got the 318 guys who, uh, who, who know how to carry a sword and a shield and have gone into battle. They've taken off after him. They have conquered these guys in the night, and they have captured all of, uh, all of the people who were taken into captivity, uh, along with all of the plunder of these cities where they had lived, and they brought it all back, and they're on kind of a victory march through the city of Jerusalem, which at that time is called Salem. And the person that Abraham meets there is a guy named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek has an interesting name. Uh, his, his name, Melchi, uh, is the word for king, and Zedek is the word for righteousness. Okay? So he has a unique name, king of righteousness. Okay? Melchi Zedek. And then he is also the king of Salem. The city. And Salem is related to the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. And so he is king of righteousness and king of peace. And he is also a priest, which is unique because in Israel there was no such thing as a king priest. You could not be hold the title simultaneously of both king and priest because kings descended from the line of Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, and priests descended from the sons of Aaron, who was descended from Levi. And so you could not com- and you could not combine the roles. In fact, there were a couple of kings who tried it, who lost their kingdom over it. One of them was King Saul. Uh, King Saul, when he tried it. Um, got rebuked by the prophet Samuel, who told him to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to God's word than the fat of rams. And you needed to obey. And, and he says, and the kingdom is going to be taken away from you, and given to someone who has God's own heart, instead of a heart to follow his own will. And he gave it to David as a result of Saul's disobedience. There was another king named Uzziah who was descended from David, and Uzziah uh, got leprosy when he went in to offer sacrifice in the temple like a priest. And he was not buried, in fact, with the 
descendants of King David. He was buried off to his own self because he had leprosy. So for the rest of his life, he was stricken by God in judgment because you do not combine in Israel the roles of king and priest. But Jesus is of a different order of priest. He's not descended from Aaron. He's descended from, in a sense, from Melchizedek. He has taken on a role like Melchizedek, who is king and priest. Um, and I want to look at this with you just, just in a little more detail, okay? Um, you want to see some little more detail about Melchizedek, verses 4 through 10. Uh, what he's talking about there is this, in verse 4 through 10. He's talking about the priesthood of Aaron, of, of Aaron is inferior to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And the reason for that is that you have to understand how Jews understood, uh, understood ge- your genealogy to work. That if you, were, uh, if you were a great king, let's say, or one of the patriarchs, then it was believed that all of your descendants, in a sense, are contained within you. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. All of your descendants are contained within you. So therefore, when Abraham, who Abraham would have been regarded as the greatest of all of the people in the nation of Israel, because he is the one who founded the nation, and everybody else who descends from him, great as they were, could never come up to his level. So, when Abraham recognizes the superiority of Melchizedek, which he does by giving him a tithe of all of the, all of the things he has obtained through this war, then he is recognizing the superiority of Melchizedek over him. But Abraham, remember, is the greatest person in all Israel. So, everyone who descends from him is, in a sense, an inferior to Abraham himself, who is also an inferior to Melchizedek. So what he's saying is, is this, is that the Levite priests collect tithes and offerings from the rest of the people in the Jewish nation, and the rest of the people in the Jewish nation show their submission to the law by paying those tithes. But Levi himself was, was a descendant of Abraham who paid tithes to Melchizedek, thus establishing that the Levite priesthood is inferior to the one that comes from Melchizedek, which is an interesting way to look at it. And he says, look, in a sense, Aaron and the priests that descended from him, in a sense, also paid tithes to their superior to Melchizedek. And on top of that, according to verses 11 to 14, he says, look, another priest had to come because the Levite priesthood failed. How did it fail? It failed in that it was unable to bring people near to God and to fully atone for their sin. See, 
the, the Levites continued to offer sacrifices and continued to offer sacrifices and continued to offer sacrifices day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year. And in fact, priest after priest. Because the high priest had his ministry terminated in the very normal way that he died. And they had to replace him with someone else. And so the Levitical priesthood eventually failed because it showed that all that they were doing and all of the things they're going through cannot actually bring someone near to God. And in fact, it underlined this point by the fact that only the high priest and only once a year could even come near to God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And that it was a fearful thing to do so. They had to light incense so there'd be a big cloud of smoke to cover the guy as he went into God's presence. And they put bells around the hem of his robe because they wanted to make sure he was still alive in there as he went into God's presence. And he had to come with the blood of sacrifice. And every year he had to do the same thing. Because the people could not draw near to God. But the purpose of the priesthood was to enable people to draw near. But they couldn't draw near. Because you've got an imperfect priest offering an imperfect sacrifice and an imperfect system of worship. And so we needed another priest and we needed it to be from someone greater than Levi. From someone greater than Aaron. From someone greater than Abraham. Who are you going to get? Someone to whom those men paid tithes. Someone in a different order of priesthood. The priesthood of Melchizedek. And what he's doing there is he's drawing on Psalm 110. Where he's talking about the messianic king. Psalm 110 verse 4. You can look it up. And it says, you, you, talking about the Messianic king, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, though you are descended from Judah and cannot by that descent become a priest, you can become a different kind of priest, one, is, one which is superior to any of the priesthood that comes from Israel. A priesthood like Melchizedek, who, the, who was a king priest to whom Abraham submitted. And you're going to have to get a change in the priesthood. And therefore, you're going to need a change in the law. You're going to need, in other words, a new covenant. Which we're going to look at next week. We'll be here next week. Talk about the new covenant. Okay, and how Jesus brings the new covenant. But he says, look, you're going to need a new, a new law and a new priesthood. Because the old law and the old priesthood failed in that it couldn't achieve what it was intended to achieve, which was to bring people close to God. So you're going to need a new one. And that's the point of uh, verses 15 to 22. Uh, look at these verses here with me. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of his, its weakness and, un, and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. 
And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Here's the point, that Jesus in his role as our Messiah is the fulfillment of Psalm 110 which the Jews knew was about Jesus being the, was, was about the Messiah. And he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the prediction of Messiah. And the Jews knew that Psalm 110 was about Messiah. And he says, look, this is the man. This is the guy. This is the priesthood we were promised, that he was going to be a king and priest like Melchizedek forever. And he made the promise on top of that with an oath. Now, as we saw a couple of weeks ago when we talked about two unchangeable things, God's character and His Word, that they're both unchangeable, He's saying, look, we, all, we not only have God's Word on this, He swore to it. He swore to it to underline the fact that this is going to happen. And by the way, it has happened. It has happened. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. How do we know that Jesus takes on the priesthood like Melchizedek? We know because uh, he, he achieved it, he attained it through the power of what was called, what he says here, an indestructible life. See, the Levites, who, who, uh, the descendants of Aaron who, who were uh, Levite priests, became priests on the basis of their physical descent. They'd look at their genealogy and they'd say, see, I descend of the right tribe, the right family within that tribe, and therefore I have the right to serve as priest. And you had to be able to prove it. You had to keep good records. And you had to be able to prove it. There were some guys who came back from the exile who said that they had the right to serve at the temple and couldn't prove it by their genealogy and therefore weren't allowed to serve. You had to be able to prove who you were. And it was based not not on any superiority in who you were as a person, but simply based on your bodily descent. If you meet meet a Jew today whose last name is Cohen or Cohn, C-O-H-N or C-O-H-E-N, they are, that word means, priest. They are the descendants of Aaron. They are the, the men who have the right to serve at the temple should it ever be rebuilt. That matters. Even in Judaism today. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus got his priesthood a different way. By defeating death in making atonement for our sins with his death and showing that death did not keep a hold of him. He rose from the dead and he is able, therefore, to remain our priest forever and ever. Because, see, the promise is you are a priest forever. Well, how can a man be a priest forever? Every priest dies. How can that be? Jesus rose from the dead. 
Thus, he can fulfill what Psalm 110 promised, that he would be a priest forever. He would be a priest forever. He's the one that, Jesus, that, that, that David prophesied about in Psalms. At the moment that Jesus is raised from the dead, the old law is set aside and a new one is established. And the new one is established because it can now achieve its purpose of drawing people permanently near to God through it. What the old law couldn't do, what it was powerless to do, to enable people to draw into the presence of God himself, now the new covenant is able to do through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, who is the fulfillment in every way of the the word about Melchizedek. You know, Melchizedek just appears and is gone. Unlike every other priest in the Old Testament, you don't hear about who his parents were. You don't find about anything about his genealogy. You don't find anything about his birth or his death. And he's already made the point in the previous verses. These, in these ways, he is just like Jesus, who eternally existed, who didn't have a beginning, and who will not have an end. The Son of God did not have parents who brought him into existence, right? Now, Jesus has a mother, but the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, does not have a beginning. He's eternal. He was in the beginning with God, as John chapter 1 says. And so he will live forever and is able, therefore, to be a priest forever for us. And we need a permanent priest Now, let's move on here. Verse 23 and following. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, according to Jewish records, there were 83 different men who served as high priest between the days of Aaron and the final destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. They had to be numerous because every single one of them eventually died. And death has a way of preventing you from continuing your ministry. It's a unique thing, right? Um, One day, uh, my pastorate here will come to an end. Uh, They will plant me in the yard somewhere, right? Um, And when I will await the day when the trumpet blows and my body is raised from the dead, right? Uh, But Jesus is different than all of these other men who served as high priest in that he uh, will not, having died to become our priest, 
offering the sacrifice of himself as the ultimate sacrifice. Having died, he cannot die again. He eternally lives to intercede for us. And therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost. Now, I heard a preacher say one time that Jesus saves from the guttermost to the uppermost. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and I like that. Okay? I did. I'm like, hmm, I got to remember that. Right? But, um, and he does. He saves from as low as we are, wherever that is, all the way. When it uses the word uttermost, it's an unusual word. I think it only appears here in your Bible. You ought to circle it and underline it. Because what it means is, is that Jesus is able to save you completely. He is able to save you from everything you have ever done, everything you ever will do, every sin you have committed, every one you thought about committing, everything that is wrong with you, He is able to save you completely. Now, we know from our New Testament that the Old Testament sacrifices didn't do that. All they did was just cover over sin. You know, it's like a kid trying to sweep up the dirt and just finds a rug to put the rug down, right? (laughs) Right? Just sweep it under the rug for one more year. It's covered over and you can't see it. But what Jesus does when he comes is to pull back the rug and deal with all of the funk that's underneath there. All of the people in the Old Testament were saved by faith, but it was in a sense on credit that that. They knew that the Messiah was coming, and so they anticipated His coming, and by faith they believed that God would provide the Messiah that He had promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 in the garden. And they will learn more and more about Him all through the Old Testament. They find out more that He's going to be a descendant of Abraham, that He's going to descend through the tribe of Judah, that He's going to descend from the family of David, that He's going to one day reign as king, that He's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, that he's going to have all kinds of things that he is going to do, that the lame will walk and the blind will see and the poor will be comforted, all because of this amazing person who is to come. And in the meantime, every year we on the Day of Atonement sweep a little more dirt under the rug. We rack up the bill a little higher. Well, one day at Calvary on Easter Friday, on Good Friday, Jesus paid off the bill. In fact, that's the word He uses. He says as He hangs there, the last thing he says to tell us die. Which means, it's a financial term. It means paid in full. Jesus paid the bill. And therefore, he is able to save completely from the guttermost to the uttermost. He is able to save completely 
those who put their trust in Him because He always lives to make intercession for us. Part of the role of the high priest was to go before the the Lord in the holy place and to light the incense every day. And that symbolized the prayers of the people going up to God. And he would go in and he would pray for the sins of the people and pray for their forgiveness before the nation. But eventually that priest died. And we had to suit up another one. Send him in to intercede for us. But Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Let me tell you what that's like. The story is told of a, little, of, a, of a father who went away on a long trip and he had a little boy and his little boy wanted to do something for him to, um, to celebrate the fact that dad was coming home. And so his mom said, well, son, why don't you go outside and pick a bunch of flowers? So the little boy went out and picked everything he could find that had a flower on it. And he came back with tulips, roses, bull thistles, dandelions, a whole bunch of stuff, right? And he brought it to his mom, and he goes, here, won't daddy like this? And she goes, I tell you what, son, I think it's great. When dad came home, all that was in the bouquet was flowers. You know what happened? Mom intervened, and she pulled out the thistles and dandelions and all the weeds and presented as a beautiful gift, all of the flowers that the son had picked. In a sense, that's what Jesus does with us before the Father. That he, by his intercession, by his priestly ministry, makes us an offering acceptable to God. He intervenes on our behalf to make us a beautiful bouquet instead of flowers and weeds. He intervenes on our behalf. And He is able to do this. It gets better. Look at this. Verse 26 to 28. He's able to do this because He's totally unlike any of the other high priests. He is holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He is... He is qualitatively superior to every other priest that has ever been, in other words. And the point is this, every other priest, before they could make an offering on behalf of anybody else, had to lay their hands on another animal for themselves. And they had to confess their sin in front of God and everybody and admit to what they had done and shed blood for their own sin and carry that before the Lord and then they could come out and help out you and me after they had dealt with their own junk. But Jesus had no sin of His own to deal with. And therefore, He is able to deal completely with ours. Under the new covenant, we get a much better high priest. We get, in fulfillment of God's oath, one sacrifice that is able to make perfect forever those who put their trust in Him. Now, there are two big points being made here in this text. 
Just two. The first one is this, that the old covenant is over. That it's over. It's done. And it's over not because it was bad, but because it was insufficient and has been fulfilled and therefore superseded by a new covenant established by Jesus, who is a better priest, offering a better sacrifice to be able to save completely and not on credit those who put their trust in Him. He is... He is this covenant is established by, on a bigger and better foundation than the one we had. It's established by God's oath. And it's established through a bigger and better sacrifice made by a bigger and better priest who is an eternal and therefore bigger and better Savior than the promise we had before because He is the reality that the promise pointed to. And so there is therefore nothing... Nothing to be gained by turning away from Christ and going back to your old life. There is nothing to be gained because this is the biggest and the best thing that God could possibly do. If we reject Christ's role as king and priest over us and for us, then we are losing out on the very best that God could possibly offer us. We are losing out. We are missing the one way which God made to save us to the uttermost, to the completion point. Now, I know that some of you in this room have probably been rejecting Jesus all your life up to this point, even though you are here. And if that describes you, I want to be very clear with you. Jesus is it. He is what you're looking for. He is the only thing that can save you from death and hell forever. And so, if you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, I invite you and encourage you and beg you and plead with you to do so right now. Because He is able and He alone is able to save completely those who put their trust in Him. He is the the ultimate high priest, the ultimate king, the ultimate fulfillment of all Old Testament expectation. He is the ultimate gift that God has given. So I want you to put your trust in Him because He is life and there is none apart from Him. And number two, and this is for those of us who are believers, that since God has gone to all of this effort to, draw, to enable us to draw near to Him, we need to take advantage of that. Amen? God has done what, what everyone in the Old Testament dreamed would one day be possible, that they could draw near to God and be close to Him as it was possible to be. Even Moses, who spoke with God on the mountain, could not see God face to face and live. But Jesus has opened for us a new and living way to draw near to God. Now, not some far off time in the future, now, 
And therefore, we ought to enjoy and soak up the fact that we can, because of God's goodness and love for us, draw near to Him. And we draw near not on the basis of our goodness, but based on the blood of Christ who intercedes for us and who reforms us so that we are acceptable in God's presence. Amen? And that is an amazing privilege and blessing. So let's draw near to God today. Let's not take this lightly. Let's draw near to Him. Let's draw near to confess our sin. Let's draw near to find healing from our sin. Let's draw near to God in worship and awe and wonder. Let's draw near in fellowship and communion and relationship simply because He is worthy of all of those things. Because of all that He has done for us in in sending Jesus Christ to establish the new covenant for us. Amen? In fact, let's draw near right now as we close our service. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the massive privilege we have of drawing near to You through faith in Jesus Christ. That He is able to save us to the uttermost. That He is able to save us completely because He is the guarantor of a better covenant. That by His blood He established a better covenant based on better promises and that we're able to come to a better priest who intercedes for us in a better way and in fact eternally lives to do it. And Father, we thank you for all of these manifold blessings that we have. And we pray that we might not take them lightly, but that we might enjoy you and worship you and give you praise and not run away from you even when we sin, but draw near in confession and healing that we might dwell in your presence with joy forever. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.